morning, church. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of more praise than we could ever give. Christ is worthy of all exaltation, and we have, we have just felt the frailty of our own voices, our own inability, the incapacity of human language to give you what you deserve. And we, we pray, Lord, that you would just be able to read our hearts, our intent to, to praise you well, to love you well to exalt Christ as he deserves, to praise you as you deserve. We ask, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would do as we have just sung, that you would magnify Christ by awakening us, by helping us to understand what we find here, by opening our own hearts and helping us to see where there may be maybe remnants of resistance to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see how ugly that is, how beautiful is the authority of Jesus, how lovely is his reign over us. Lord, help us to run from resistance and run to his lordship with great delight today. We pray for your help in these things and that you would receive our receptive ears as a measure of worship in these coming minutes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. This morning we'll be considering Mark eleven twenty seven through 12, 12, 11, 27 through 12, 12. As you're finding your place there, I'll ask you to stand with me. For the sake of time, we'll not read that entire section here at the beginning, but we will we'll just read that beginning portion at the end of chapter 11. So 11, 27 through the end of chapter 11. Mark 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave this authority to you to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, 
neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You may be seated. You'll recall that the primary focus of this section, chapters 10 through 13, is the growing tension between Jesus and, and these Jewish leaders. They, they come at him here in the temple. We're going to find that it doesn't go well for them. They'll go away. They're going to send others later to try to trip him up. Does it go well for them? They're going to get mad as hornets. And it's all just leading to Jesus' eventual arrest, condemnation, suffering, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, just as he has predicted three times in the previous section of the narrative. And this interaction, extending from 1127 through 1212, highlights the Jewish leader's historic authority problem, where it's going to lead for Jesus and where it is going to lead for them. As we read, anytime we read the scriptures, we should recognize two things. First of all, these things actually happened. This is real history. But second, it is not mere history. Rather, it is theological history, teaching us something about the dealings of God with men, including us. And our opportunity this morning is to consider the authority problem of the religious leaders as emblematic of all mankind. Who are you to tell me what to do? That is the essential question that man has been asking since the Garden of Eden. Who are you to tell me what to do? Now, we, we tend to celebrate that question in our culture, but the Bible would teach us that it is not a question to be celebrated. The impulse underneath that question is really the source of all our troubles as humankind. The very first man rejected God's authority in the garden, and that impulse became the natural state of the hearts of all mankind, and we have all been asking that question ever since. Who are you to tell me what to do? When we say that question to other men, it is simply run off from our hearts from our overarching authority problem toward God. All authority is from God. We have a problem with God's authority, therefore we have a pro problem with all authority. And this sin toward God is something that separates us from, from Him, and it causes every form of misery on this earth. We see it all around us all of the time. We see it in our own community. We see it in our own homes. We see it across the, gl the globe. Misery that comes to us because of our estrangement from God that stems essentially from our authority problem. It brings upon us not just misery on this earth, but the just eternal condemnation of this good God. In spite of the misery that comes from rejecting God's rightful authority over us, we just continue to reject Him. That's what the Jewish authorities are doing right here. However, the Bible teaches, as we, as we see here in Mark, that God is so loving and gracious that He planned from eternity past to free sinners from slavery to their own sin. How? By sending His Son. His Son, who was Himself a figure of divine authority, 
He sent that son of divine authority to take the sins of men upon himself and suffer and die for those sins that he himself had never committed. As we're continuing in this narrative, we are marching toward this, this, this terrible and wonderful scene where Jesus will die on the cross instead of rebel sinners. That's, that's what Jesus is doing here in, in Jerusalem, in Mark 11. That's why he's there. He's, he is moving inexorably toward the cross. He is there to die for rebel sinners, for sinners rejecting his authority, that he might save them from that authority problem. And even on his way, he is calling men to repent and follow him submit to his authority. The gospel is the good news that although man is estranged from God because of sin, because of this authority problem, in Christ there is the hope of reconciliation to God for all those who repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. He is the only hope for sinners. Rejection of Him, final rejection of Him, means absolute destruction. That is the big idea of the, the larger patch, passage this morning. We're going to get there in three steps, the first of which is this. To reject Jesus is to reject the authority of God. To reject Jesus is to reject the authority of God. And as we've just read, Jesus and the disciples, they're, they're coming back into the temple. And if we were to scan back through chapter 10 and, and, and into chapter 11, we would find that this is the third day in the row that Jesus has come to the temple. The Lord's walking around in the temple. And let's just be reminded that, that this would be a bit awkward for everybody probably but Jesus. You, you remember why? Because the previous day, he kicked everybody out of the temple. He cleansed the temple, is what we would say. One day earlier, one day earlier, Jesus is turning over the tables of the money changers, and he's driving out those buying and selling there. Wouldn't even let them carry their stuff out. He was indicting them for turning his house of prayer into a, a den of robbers. Keep in mind that the commerce of the temple, this, this, this making of money there, that Jesus has just put to a halt, that was vital to the livelihood of the priestly class. Jesus threw a massive wrench into that money-making machine. And Mark revealed in, in 11.18 that the, the leaders, these leaders, these, these, these chief priests and scribes and elders, they immediately wanted to kill him. And now he's back the next day just in, adding insult to injury by walking around like he owns the place. <laughs> so these chief priests, scribes, and elders, they come to him and say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? They want to know, who gave you the authority to cleanse our temple like you did yesterday? Now, this is not the first time that the issue of authority has come up in the Gospel of Mark. It has been a theme since verse 1. 
the authority of Christ. So by the time we get to chapter 11, there is no question that Jesus has authority, nor is there any question where he got it. It's been a major point from verse 1. I would invite you to turn all the way back to Mark 1.1. And we'll take just a very, very quick tour of some of the highlights regarding this theme of the authority of Christ. The very first verse of Mark, Mark 1.1 reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first statement about Jesus' identity. And Mark wants to drive home immediately that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. We don't have, to, we don't have time to look at every indicator up to chapter 11, that Jesus has authority. We'll just grab a few. Jump down to verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. This is at Jesus' baptism. And we read in, in verse 11, A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's not ambiguous at all. Jump down to verse 21. And they, Jesus and His disciples, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In other words, he's got a, an authority that is unlike anything that they've seen before, contrasting them explicitly with the scribes. Upon casting out an unclean spirit in that synagogue, the people proclaim, down in verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. He commands the demons, and they do what He says. And we jump down to chapter 2. We won't read verses 1 through 12. You can scan it. Jesus demonstrates His authority by forgiving sins, and not in the way that you and I do, but in the, the sense that God the Father does. That is, ultimately, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jump down to 2.28. Where Jesus himself says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath. Jump to 4, chapter 4, verse 41, 441. In that section, Jesus uses words to calm a storm. He says things and nature responds. Look at what the disciples say in 441. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. He has authority over the natural world. If we turn over to chapter 5, again, we don't have time to read all of this. You could scan that just to jog your memory. In chapter 5 is the story of the man who was possessed by a legion of demons who openly identified Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. And so terrified were this legion of demons, so terrified were they of Jesus, they didn't run from Jesus but ran to him and begged him for mercy. They begged him for permission to leave this man and enter a herd of pigs, and Jesus grants that authority. The whole story demonstrates Jesus' divine authority. There are a plethora of, of stories following uh, where, where Jesus demonstrates authority to do things only God can do, like walking on water, giving the blind sight, giving deaf the, the ability to hear. In chapter 5, verses 34 through 43, Jesus demonstrates authority over death itself by raising a little girl from the dead. Over and over, these kinds of things happening happen, culminating in the transfiguration where the Father says again from heaven, this is my beloved Son. 
So we have, we have a parade of things happening in the book of Mark, demonstrating the authority of Jesus. By the time the reader gets to 1128, and the Jewish leaders ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? We're intended to think, seriously? Anyone asking that point, that, that question at this point in, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, it is obvious that they have willfully rejected that authority. This is not an honest question. They have rejected that authority and they're trying to cover themselves by asking the question about his authority. This authority is from God, clearly. And Jesus is going to put them in a position to expose their own rejection of his authority, to make it obvious to everyone. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, Jesus is not being petulant and neither is he asking just a random question here meant to stall them. He's forcing them to answer their own question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This question is also a question of authority. Now let, let's you mean, hold, your, hold your finger there in chapter 11. Go back to chapter 1 again. The baptism of John. He's asking about the baptism of John. That is shorthand for jo John's baptism. I'm sorry, John's ministry as a whole. His baptism was a visual symbol of the inner response to the message that John brought which was a, a message of repentance. Now let's look beginning at Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Mark tells us that John's ministry was from God. John's ministry fulfilled prophecies from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. John's mission was to prepare the way of the Messiah by calling people to repent and to be baptized as an outward display of that repentance. Now hold your finger there now in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 11 and look at 1131. And they discussed it with one another, these religious leaders, they discussed it with one another, discussing Jesus' questions. Is this baptism from God or from man? And they, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Why, why then did you not believe what? What, what is there to believe in John's, in John's message? Again, John, John wasn't calling for, for, for repentance in a vacuum, but in preparation for the imminent coming of Christ. Okay, so now go back to chapter 1 and, and look at verse 7. Anyone who understood John to be sent from heaven should have believed what John said in verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. And he, John, preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, to hold that John's message was authorized by heaven is to believe in the authority of Jesus because John's message is repent and get ready for this guy who is coming. If you believe that that message is from heaven, you've got to believe in this one who is coming. They know 
That's what Jesus is going to say. These Jewish leaders, they know that Jesus is going to say that if they say that John's message is from heaven. They know that Jesus is going to say, if John was from heaven, then why didn't you believe him when he proclaimed me? Because John is connected to Jesus, if they answer from heaven, they both answer their own question about Jesus, which is that God gave Jesus authority to do what he has done, and they confess that they have rejected God's authority. Now, go back to 11.32. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. See, they can't win with that either. The people loved John. They, they, they believed that, that John was a prophet of God. If, if, if the Jewish leaders say that John's ministry was from man and not from God, then these Jewish leaders, they're going to become the object of the people's scorn. So obviously they can't go that way. But we're wrong if we think that this is just a lose-lose situation. It is a lose-lose-lose situation. Look at verse 33. So they answered, we do not know. Now, even though they went this route, it is not a winning position either. All right? It, this, this is simply the least of three evils. It is, it, is, it is a losing position because by lying and saying that they don't know, they've confessed that they have no spiritual discernment. I mean, if anybody should know the, the origin, the divine or human, of a prophet, it's these guys. And this was an easy call. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows where John came from. So with this answer, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they, they lose all credibility as spiritual leaders. And with that, Losing all credibility. They would rather lose all credibility than say, yes, Jesus is who he says he is. Look at the rest of verse 33. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, Jesus is not being petulant. This whole scene has shown they know the answer. They just rejected his authority. It's, it's obvious to the reader who Jesus is, obvious to the reader who John is. It's obvious to the crowd who Jesus is and who John is. The obvious answer to Jesus' question is that John was from heaven. That these leaders refuse to give an answer shows that they have rejected Jesus. So what would they do with an honest answer to their question from Jesus. If Jesus were to say, well, God gave me this authority, what would they do with that? They embrace it? Oh, glad to hear it. They've rejected him. They would reject him again. Jesus, with his message of repentance and faith, he has simply been calling all to turn from their sin and trust in him. By rejecting Jesus... They have rejected the authority of God. What we need to understand again is that, that this is not only history, but it is theological history. It is teaching us about God's dealings with man, including us, 
Everyone who rejects Jesus' authority rejects the authority of God. The Jewish leaders, the person who attends church every Sunday, the person who has heard the gospel a million times but never repented and surrendered to him, everyone who rejects Jesus rejects the authority of God. And this is where that authority problem is so deadly. Jesus is the only hope for sinners. There is no other. So to, to say to him, as we find it so easy to say to all authority, you'll not rule over me, is to say it finally and definitively to God. And the consequences are horrific and eternal. There is, uh, as, we, as we continue on in the text here, there's a natural shift in the flow of the narrative between chapters 11 and 12, showing what comes then from this rejection of Jesus. And we find that to reject Jesus is to invite the judgment of God. To reject Jesus is to invite the judgment of God. That interaction that we just read about at the end of chapter 11 and this parable that we're about to look at at the beginning of chapter 12, they go together. Look, look at 12.1, the beginning of 12.1. And he began to speak to them in parables. Now, who, who is them? It's the chief priests, scribes, and elders. But Jesus is still talking to them. It's, it's the same scene, same conversation. He is, he is continuing to communicate with these same people. Now, parables were frequently used by Jesus to conceal truth from those under condemnation. This parable is not subtle. And we're going to find that they get the point clearly. Look at the rest of 12.1. Here's the parable, the beginning of it. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, stop right there briefly. The, the people that Jesus is talking to here, these are the Bible studs of the culture. They, they know the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. They know them backwards and forwards. And so they know that Jesus is borrowing he is borrowing the foundation of this parable from Isaiah chapter 5. All of, these, all of these auditory pictures are coming from Isaiah chapter 5 from an indictment there against Judah and Israel. So at the outset, their hackles would have been up. because He's, he's speaking this to them. Now let's continue in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the, the, the vineyard owner repeatedly sends representatives to get what rightfully belongs to the vineyard owner. And all of these representatives, they are shamefully treated, beaten, some of them killed. And finally, even the owner's son. Now, if, if we have even a cursory awareness of the Old Testament, it doesn't take a world-class scholar to see the parallels here with the history of Israel. After that initial rejection of God in Genesis chapter 3, God set out on a mission to bring man back to himself, to get what was rightfully his. And, and in that mission, God has this long history of, of sending his messengers to the Israelites to call them back to himself. And we find the Israelites rejecting those sent by God, those calling them to repentance, those calling them to salvation, those pointing them to God. We find them rejecting those people, mistreating them, killing some of them. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 argues that Joseph and Moses fall into that line of savior prophets who were rejected and mistreated by the people. There's also Elijah who said to the Lord in 1 Kings 19.10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah is left alone among the prophets of God in his day. All the rest had been killed. Joseph, Moses, Elijah, put Jeremiah alongside them. Jeremiah recorded Yahweh saying in Jeremiah 2.30, In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And after that, Jeremiah himself came among those who were persecuted by the people of God. He was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was thrown into a cistern to die. The, the, the interaction with these Jewish leaders at the end of Mark 11 places John in that same pattern. He came speaking the words of God and he was murdered by Herod. And now that pattern culminates in Jesus himself. The Son of God has come. And the Jewish leaders desire to kill him. Now with this parable, Jesus places the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in the same line as their forefathers who have killed the prophets of God. And with this parable, he signals that these men who he is talking to, he signals that they are going to murder him. He's saying to them, I know what you're going to do to me. In verse 9, look at verse 9. Jesus poses another question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That question and its answer, there in verse 9, 
That is the center of this whole passage. And, and it leads to the grand point. There are grave consequences for what the Jewish leaders have done in rejecting Jesus and for what they are going to do in killing Jesus. And he, he says that there, there are two consequences for these, these Jewish leaders. We'll do, deal with the second one first. First of all, he's going to give the vineyard to others. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we're going to have occasion to look at this later in the book of Mark. But the vineyard is going to be given to others. You can read Paul's take on that reality in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, the Jews were the only game in town when it came to having a relationship with God of any kind. They were the only people that God interacted with. It was through the Jews that God would, would bring the world to Himself. With their rejection of Him, that privilege was given to all believing Jews and Gentiles. We'll see more about that in chapter 13. A second consequence, that they are going to be destroyed. These Jewish leaders are going to be destroyed. In most cases, we see, we see this pattern in the scriptures, God sending messengers to his people, calling them back to himself. They get rejected. In most cases, in that pattern, rejection of God's authority, of those chosen authoritative figures, that invites the judgment of God. Now, if, if that was the case in the past, how much more for those who reject God's own son? It's a sobering thought. They're going to be destroyed. Now, something to keep in mind is that biblical destruction, the destruction that we see taught in, particularly in the New Testament, is, is not merely those who reject Jesus that they, that they die, not just that they die, nor even that when they die, they experience what some have called annihilation, which is just that you die and you just cease to exist, but rather... We read in places like Revelation chapter 14, we read about the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And so when we, when we hear, and, and this is tragic, when we hear the lost saying of their loved ones who have rejected Christ, rest in peace. It's the worst of ironies. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for those who reject Christ. God has graciously provided a Savior in His Son to redeem man from that eternity. What a crime to reject Him. What a tragedy to reject him. To do so is to embrace damnation beyond anything that we can imagine. What may be worse is that to reject Jesus is to miss the kingdom of God. That's the, the final thing that we'll see here this morning. To reject Jesus is to miss the kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 10. Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, Have you not read this scripture? 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's a quotation from Psalm 118, which Pastor Dan read for us this morning. Uh, as that was being read for us, could you not hear the joy of that psalm? It's a psalm of thanksgiving for the salvation of God. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now Jesus predicted earlier in chapter 11 that the temple was going to be destroyed. And so we may be puzzled about this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isn't the temple going to be destroyed? Yes, it's, that temple is going to be destroyed. That does not mean that Jesus never intended for there to never be another temple of any kind. I mentioned to you earlier Paul's take on the kingdom being given to others in Ephesians chapter 2. In that same context in Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, written to believing Gentiles. Listen to this. We hear, we hear about another temple. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A new temple, which is the people of God. Now, if we think back to the Old Testament, let's be reminded, what, what was the temple? It was the meeting place of God with His people. Fellowship with God was lost to us in Eden. That is the great tragedy of human history. By rejecting God, we lost God. There is nothing worse. When God gave Israel a temple, initially a tabernacle, then a temple, when God gave Israel a temple, He gave a picture of a glorious future man living once again in fellowship with God. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a, a picture of a return to Eden, but a better Eden. With the temple, that, that Old Testament temple, God also gave a picture of what that reconciliation was going to require, and that is the slaughter of an unblemished sacrifice. And what we are finding in Mark chapter 11 is that that unblemished sacrifice is Jesus Christ himself. God's reconciling man to himself through the death of Christ rendered that old temple obsolete it also created a new temple, the church consisting of all who believe in whom the very Spirit of God will dwell. So the builders, and who Jesus is referring to as the builders here, are these Jewish leaders. The, the builders, the Jewish leaders, they rejected Jesus. Now in rejecting Jesus and killing Jesus, that didn't prevent the building of a new temple. But contrary to that, they're rejecting and murdering Christ fulfilled the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23. When they did that, they slaughtered the unblemished sacrifice by which our sins were covered. By Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the Father made Him the cornerstone of the new temple, which is the church composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. And just a few verses earlier in Psalm 118, let me remind you that we, we read this morning. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness, that, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the doing of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. I encourage you to take some time today to read all of Psalm 118. And immediately after, read all of Revelation 21 and 22. And see if you don't find some points of contact there. This body founded upon the cornerstone of Christ is going to spend eternity with the Godhead in a glorious new heaven and new earth. This is the Lord's doing, and it's glorious in our eyes. It is the quintessential iteration of what man meant for evil, God meant for good. He has used the very rejection and murder of His Son to bring about the redemption of His people. What the Jewish leaders were trying to prevent, they caused. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. And... The greater tragedy for those who reject Jesus, the greater tragedy for those who reject Jesus is not that they will spend eternity in hell, but that they will spend eternity away from Christ. Separation from Christ for all eternity, that is a fate worse than death. God has given gracious warnings. He's given you one this morning. Gracious warnings. These Jewish leaders received gracious warnings. They're receiving it even as we, as we read it here this morning. In spite of those warnings, they persist. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Is that not remarkable? Even with all this, all, all that they've seen Jesus do and all that Jesus has just said to them, what will the Lord of the vineyard do? He'll destroy them. And the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In spite of all that they've just heard, they continue right down the path that Jesus has just foretold, knowing exactly where it leads. If you have never followed Jesus Christ, consider this pattern. Consider this pattern of which these Jewish leaders are just one iteration. God sends a messenger to call people to Himself. They reject and mistreat or kill that messenger. God sends another messenger call them to himself. They reject and mistreat or kill that messenger. He sends another and another. Eventually he sends his own son. The only one through whom redemption can come. And they rejected and killed him too. Now the implicit question to everyone that reads this text is this. Will you follow in that same pattern of rejection? Or will you follow a different path? Will you continue in your rejection of His authority? Inviting judgment? Missing this glorious kingdom? Or will you welcome the loving, kind, gracious saving 
authority of Jesus, repenting of your sin, trusting in him, enjoying his presence now and for all eternity. If you have followed Jesus Christ, if you have followed Jesus, how might a 21st century believer take this scripture and live in light of it? What, what, what might we do with what we've found this morning? There could be many different things that we might do with it, different ways that we might apply it. I, I want to suggest three things to you and then challenge you to consider chewing on these things and see what the Lord might lead you to do. But here are three suggestions. First of all, think to yourself, am I walking in submission to the authority of Christ? Am I walking in submission to the authority of Christ? Consider that resistance to Jesus' authority looks more like those who killed Jesus than those who followed him. Is there, is there an, an area of your life, perhaps there is a, a pet sin that you've just refused to surrender to the lordship of, of Jesus? Or, or maybe there are circumstances that he has brought into your life and because of those circumstances, you have adopted a, a posture of grumbling toward him. Implicitly echoing these Jewish leaders saying, what right do you have to, to bring this into my life? Is there an area in your life where you're failing to walk in submission to the authority of Christ? If so, simply repent of that this morning. Deal with that and joyfully surrender to the kind authority of Jesus. Second, consider that all authority is from Jesus. All authority is from Jesus. The resurrected Christ said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The apostles teach in the New Testament that he delegated that authority to men. Are you resisting Christ's authority by resisting authority that he has delegated in human spheres? Are you kicking against the goads, so to speak? It may be quite American to do so. It is not biblical or godly. Is that something that needs to be dealt with this morning? A third possibility. Consider the boldness and clarity mo motivated by grace with which Jesus spoke to those resisting him. Are we being similarly bold and clear and gracious in our sharing the gospel? As the culture around us resists his authority, are we, are we missing opportunities left and right to winsomely share his good news with them? These are just a few things to consider. And in a moment after I pray, we'll, we'll share a few moments of silence before the Lord. I encourage you to pray in those moments that he might open your eyes to what he would have you to do with these things that we've seen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the extent 
of your love for us, your kindness, all that you have done and sacrificed to reconcile rebel sinners to yourself. And, and not just that we might be your subjects, but that we might be your sons and daughters. It's almost ridiculous to think about. We thank you that it's true. We pray, Father, that we would be so overwhelmed by it that we would never get over it. Father, if there are some among us who are wholly resistant to the authority of Christ, who have never repented and trusted in Him, that they might be saved, we pray, Father, that You would just graciously bear down upon their consciences, grant them to feel the full weight of condemnation for their sins, the, the, the imminence of judgment that you would do that kindness to them now, and that having seen their hopeless estate, that you would open their eyes to the glorious salvation that is in Christ alone, and that they would cling to Jesus, King Jesus, wanting nothing more than to turn from all that this world has all that he is. But for any among us who have, who have turned to Christ in faith, who may be sheltering pockets of rebellion, Lord, would you please move us to repentance? You would remind us of, of the great kindness of Christ. That it is bad for our souls to hold back from him. we would come back, that we, that we would surrender everything to him, knowing that he is, he is a good king. We would do so for his glory, for our own good. Pray these things in his name.